What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Furs. My guest today is Christopher Packard, resident of Hamden, Maine, where he lives with his wife and sons, tends his small homestead of family, gardens, and chickens. Chris is the author of Mystical Creatures of Maine, Fantastic Beasts from Legend and Folklore, published by Down East Books. Chris is a full-time high school teacher with a passion for the Maine outdoors, where he runs, hikes, canoes, and gathers experience, which he translates into his teaching of natural history and science, beyond the formal classroom, in summer camps, nature centers, and museums across the state. So Chris, who are you, and how did you come to write this book? So I'm a teacher at uh, Bangor High School, in, and I live in Hampton. Uh, I My family has been in Maine for many generations, but I had the unfortunate circumstance to actually be born in Cincinnati, uh, Ohio, and I was raised there, spending my summers, as many people do here in Maine, with my grandparents, who lived on Sebec Lake. And as sort of a scientist, never really thought I would write a book about mythical creatures of Maine. I'm a trained botanist, and I've, I've been teaching AP biology at the local high school for several years. So you came to visit your grandparents uh, in the summer from ages, what, five on, something like that? Well, I would come up for a couple of weeks every year with my parents. And then as I got a little bit older, old enough to fly on a plane with my brother, who's a bit older, we would come up. And so probably five or six years old, I'd spend another week or two or three with, with my grandparents running around in the woods along the, the shores of Sebec Lake. And my grandfather would tell me all sorts of stories about mysterious creatures in the woods that he had had a lot of experience with as a guide and as a storyteller uh, and just an all-around woodsman. I kind of came to write this book because I, I was thinking back on those creatures one day when I picked up a, a folklore book, a New England folklore book at a thrift store. And I saw that some of those creatures such, uh, that, that he had told me of were not just a figment of his imagination, were not just his stories, but were stories that other people have been telling for many years. And so I became pretty fascinated with that idea that these were not things of my grandfather's invention, but instead were stories that had been passed down uh, through my family and through many other families and groups of people in Maine for generations. And I found to know that my cousins knew some of these creatures and my uncles and aunts and my parents. And, you know, these, these were all around and that, that even that other people had heard of some of these creatures. And I'd always had a fascination with like Bigfoot and 
Loch Ness monster when I was a kid. And that's probably part of the reason why I decided I wanted to be a biologist originally and to study sort of the, the world and discover something new and unknown. And I spent a lot of time outside both in Ohio and in Maine in my youth. And I just got to know sort of like all the wonder and connection that you could find out there in nature. And, you know, I spent as much time there as I did hanging out with friends, which maybe is a little unusual for young people, but it, it was a very formative thing and continues to be a really important thing in my life, just being in nature and then having these stories that are somehow mysteriously connected to nature. I felt like they had to have some meaning. They had to have some purpose um, to be so widespread and to be the sort of universal thing that we have as, as people. Were you surprised by this, that you bet your, your academic career becoming a scientist and then suddenly overcome by, a, by fantasy? Did that, did that take you by surprise? Uh, I, I think a little bit it took me by surprise. I mean, I had this sort of like interest in, in this idea of fantasy and myth and, and story and mystery and, and cryptozoology as, as a young person. But, you know, it really did take me by surprise in some ways because, you know, when you do something for a living and you think in a certain way all the time, your brain just sort of like gets programmed to that. And so, you know, I've, I've spent years like learning all trees and plants by sight and cataloging organisms and environmental conditions and things like that, doing environmental impact statements, and then teaching students to think analytically and evidence-based ways and to evaluate observable, repeatable things. And like, I've devoted my life to this idea of data literacy and evidence-based thinking, but I think there's a lot more to existence, and I don't know if that ever stopped in me. There's no inherent contradiction in having beliefs outside of hard and fast, observable, repeatable facts, and having these, these feelings and connections with story and with myth and with family connection and cultural connection and connection with place. So to me, one of the reasons I wanted to study nature was really because I wanted to be connected with that mystery and that peace that I felt in there. And actually, that was that was a tough thing for me for a moment while I was really seriously studying graduate studies in botany. And I, I couldn't walk through the woods without naming all of the trees by scientific name and family. And it, it became very annoying to me. Um, and that, that was, it was troublesome. I became very good at it, but it, it had a cost. And did so you, I was pleased to get back to that. Did you, uh, did you play video games? Did you read Tolkien as a youth? I read a lot of fantasy novels, Tolkien included, and uh, some of the Dungeons and Dragons manuals and you know books that came along with that. Um, as a teenager, I was really into a genre that was just emerging called urban fantasy, this idea that what would fantasy and magic be like if it was in today's world? And that's sort of really taken off with some of the types of stories that we tell in the media today. Video games, not so much. I was given a Nintendo when they first came out as that first like really primo game system by my parents but of course they were unavailable so they you know this was my big Christmas present they cut out a picture of it and they gave it to me and I said you know 
I don't really want a Nintendo. I'd rather have a fish tank. And so I, I, I said, can I go get a great big fish tank for my room instead? And they said, are, are you sure you want to do that? And, and I was. And I, you know, I could play video games at my friend's house. So I, I never really looked back at that decision. I think that, so was, what, that was a what good brought decision. You, what brought you to the point of actually sitting down and saying, I'm going to research this and put it into a book? Well, it was really when I when I found that book at the thrift store that had some of my grandfather's uh, unusual fearsome critters of the lumber woods, and I found out that there was this great oral tradition that extended beyond my family and was was a big American cultural thing. And so once I discovered that, I was like, I gotta, I gotta write this down. Uh, this is, this is important. I know stories related to this that aren't in the book. And so I started just cataloging and searching things and I type things up and cut and paste from internet sources. And it's really incredible what you, what's been digitized from the public domain these days. And I just made a collection. I would go monster hunting in the anthropologic and folklore record. Uh, in the literature. Every Sunday morning, I drink my coffee and wake up and spend an hour or two hunting creatures and collecting stories that I found in books and descriptions and snippets more, more often than not just a phrase or two. And then my wife said, you know, you really ought to like maybe think about turning this into a book. And I decided that's not a bad idea. So I started to synthesize it. But again, it was just for me. I never really intended it to go fool wise but then it it got fleshed out enough that i thought well you know maybe other people would really like to know some of these things too and so then it became an obsession so tell me about burton marlborough packard who becomes a character in this book i assume he's your grand he does he is my great great grandfather got it um and he was born to a shipbuilder uh who's my great 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 grandfather in searsport maine uh, he was a master shipbuilder there, and he built some of the largest ships that were built in Searsport. He's pretty well known. And his home is now the Yardarm Motel, and his face is carved into a tree trunk uh, in front of that hotel. And that tree trunk, family legend has it, he planted that oak tree when Abraham Lincoln was shot. And so he had all this connection to the sea and being a sailor. And then my great-great-grandfather, Burton Marlborough, was, was born at the end of the Civil War. And he attempted to make his fortune on the sea, but most of his investments ended up, all of his investments, I think, ended up at the bottom of the sea, a complete loss and uninsured. He moved on to make his, to attempt to make his fortune in the lumber woods as a woodsman, as they were known at the time, but we might call them lumberjacks today. And not only that, but a foreman, and he had some money to invest. And he ran a lumbering operation with a partner the first year. And while he was closing down camp, his partner sold all of the logs and made off with the money never to be seen in Maine again. Um, the next winter, he tried it again. And his fortune was lost when his logging camp and all of his yarded logs were consumed in a forest fire. Uh, from there, he decided to head west and went out to Minnesota, where he uh, tried to make his living with a horse and a pistol doing something, but lost all of his wages, presumably, in some ill-advised card games 
and returned to Maine to run a boarding house in Willimantic, Maine, which is like if you tried to put your finger in the middle of Maine, that's where it would be. It's on the shores of Sebec Lake. That uh, sort of western end of the lake is known as Packard's Landing. Today it is, but then it was the Willimantic Spool Company. It was a boom town, and he ran the lodging house and a store as a manager there for some time. Eventually, he saved up enough money to buy the store and a post office, and then ended up purchasing a hotel at what is now Packard's Camps and a store and a post office called the Lake House. And he ran a wilderness resort hotel and also supply depot and store and post office for people who made their living locally, um, including lumberers, gum pickers, bear trappers. And there's some wonderful pictures uh, of some of these stores painted with, you know, you know, the grub stakes are available for these fellows coming from the woods. And so I figure he would have heard all the stories. He even had a little sort of village that he owned some land on associated with this hotel. And he leased this to a number of families of French origin. So he would have had access to stories of that sort as well. And so the fact that he was exposed to everybody and was sort of my first family member to take up residence for, you know, the last 125, 30 years in that area of Maine, where I heard those stories and where much of my family still lives, sort of made me want to honor his memory and say that he's the, the, the patron of these stories that were handed down to me that, that allowed me to pass these stories on to others. So he, uh, He's sort of a mythic figure in and of himself, when you think about it. Um, but did he leave those comments? He, he, he is. Did he did he leave those comments in journals? Did he write all this stuff down that you quote? Well, those quotes are the only thing in that book that are a figment of my imagination. Actually, he never wrote much of anything other than uh, promotional material for his hotel. So, I wanted to give give the book a, a sense of story and a sense of continuity. And so any creature that I figure he could have known about, I gave him a chance through me to, uh, as, as my ancestor, to sort of speak. I, I believe they call it flavor text. And it, it sort of, to me, I wanted the book to be accessible to to kids who flip and look at pictures and read captions and titles and, and big quotes and they could have a sense of what these creatures are, telling stories about their experiences and thoughts on these creatures. And so I wanted to just use that as a way to bring that alive. And, and you know, the vernacular of his time in the 1800s and early 1900s wouldn't be perfect because the purpose of those is really as a, a storytelling device because these stories really are alive. And that was my chance to tell that story through him and sort of give him the respect on that. Let's move to the book itself. But before we get into the catalog of creatures and critters, as you call them, I, I wanted to ask you about your decision that you describe in the introduction of including Wabanaki creatures, the stories of native indigenous peoples of Maine, in your catalog of books. And what was the reasoning that you went through uh, to, to come to that conclusion? This was a big decision for me. I really 
thought hard because I'm not native at all myself. And the indigenous people have, have suffered greatly from colonization and interaction with European settlers. You know, this, this branch of my family included, uh, presumably, at least in an indirect way. And so I really feel like their stories are theirs to tell. Uh, in a very real way, oftentimes the native contribution to the American culture is romanticized or forgotten. And I really think that that is a wrong as well. And so I, I didn't want to fall into the trap of leaving them out. But I, I also am concerned with telling a story that really is theirs to tell. Originally, my idea was that I would just tell these these stories about fearsome creatures of the lumber woods, like the ones I'd heard growing up. And some of the old world creature myths we'll talk about a little bit later, the ones that had come over with colonialists. But the more I researched these, I saw and recognized that native people were working as lumberjacks and trappers and were interacting with these lumbermen and with these people who are telling these stories and that the myths were blending together. They were inspiring the stories and the creatures that I was originally setting out to talk about. And I found that it became almost impossible to separate some of them. And between that and the idea of just leaving out these creatures that are represent the spirit's the indigenous spirits of the land, um, I think it just became an inevitable decision that that I needed to include them in the book. But I did not do so lightly, and I don't do so to claim that these are my stories to tell. I really kind of left their traditional stories for them to retell, the indigenous people, the Wabanaki. Here I am on Penobscot traditional land, but I wanted to give, you know, give everybody a sense that there is a whole realm of spirits and life and story to this land that predates European settlement and colonization. And I, I wanted to honor that as much as I honored the stories that, that I heard from my grandparents. The other thing that it became really important for me about is I, I met a lot of people who have a family tradition where they are part Wabanaki, you know, of, of some type or another, be it Micmac or Penobscot or Abenaki, but they have no connection connection to the native culture and, and communities that exist today. And they're, they're pretty removed, but they want to honor that part of their heritage as well. And so this gives them a sense uh, of, of what's out there so that it can be, uh, I hope that it can be a way to open a door for them to have an interest in their heritage if that's what they want. And many people said, oh yeah, I, I, that, that relates to me that I met in the course of this researching this book. And even people who were part of the indigenous community sometimes said, yeah, I don't know too many of those stories and I'd love to see what's out there. If you've just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists invoking the spirit of Maine. Here on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Christopher Packard. Chris is the author of Mystical Creatures of Maine, Fantastic Beasts from Legend and Folklore, 
teacher and collector of folk tales and legends from the history of the Maine woods and waters. Well, I, I think there's a, an amazing balance that's inherent in the structure as you go back and forth. And it, it sort of points out that superstition is not exclusive nor demeaning, that these are spiritual beliefs that have value. They're folk tales that are comparable to other folk tales that are couched as different kinds of codified beliefs. Uh, so I felt that there was, there was a sub lovely complementary aspect to the book. Uh, that's why I wanted to ask the question, because I think that works. And I don't think it's appropriation at all. I think it, it's very good to be able to put the two sets of superstitions or folk ideals side by side. Let's start, though, with the critters from the Lumberwoods. Um, give us a few examples of your favorites. Well, so the critters of the Lumberwoods, sometimes people might classify this type of folktale as, as a tall tale. And I've heard people say, well, these are types of creatures that nobody probably ever really believed in. And I don't actually think that's true. These are sort of Paul Bunyan-esque stories. And while I don't think anyone ever thinks Paul Bunyan was the giant woodsman that had babed the blue ox and was born here in Bangor and opened the lumber trails out west, I, I don't think people think that Paul Bunyan is real, but I think these are real stories that people told to each other and had meaning and importance to them culturally in those lumber camps in these situations where people were in the woods for great periods of time, or if they were trappers or gum pickers, and they sat around and talked about these things as they passed the, the winter evenings away. And so they tend to be a little bit exaggerated. I like to think of them as almost like uh, baby myths, like these, these just forming, and they tend to be a little bit ephemeral, where sometimes if the stories are continued, they almost like morph and change one into the other and have some kind of connection. Um, they, they range from humorous to terrifying. They range from sort of almost like a, a device for hazing and creating community to these warnings that we would give to each other like a boogeyman to keep people from doing something that they don't want to do. One of my favorite creatures is the Bildad. It's described as a mixed-up creature. It's about the size of a beaver, but it has kangaroo legs and a beaver tail and a hawk beak. It spends its time sitting on grassy banks on the one pond that it can be found in, in Beatty Township, which is just on the uh, border of Quebec in Maine, one of the remotest places that you can be in Maine. As the saying goes, you can't get there from here. There is literally no ungated road to get there from the United States. You would have to drive through Canada. And these creatures, they hunt and they sit on the shore and they wait for a fish to pass by and they jump out into the water and they smack the surface of the water when they see a fish go by. And that stuns the fish. They grab it, they pick it up in their front paws, they swim back to the shore and they eat it. Now, the lumberjacks had this idea that it was quite delicious, the meat, good eating, as they say. But nobody could really remember exactly the last time somebody would, had had one. And so when a lumber camp was set up not too far from this, they managed to uh, snare one and uh, 
woodsman named Bill Murphy from Ambejesus was the first one to sit down for some slum gullion, as they call it, made by the camp cook who cooked up this bildad that they'd managed to catch. And he started eating it with great delight and relish until all of a sudden he sort of froze up and uh, with a great scream and a tremble, he jumped up and he got a glazed look over his eye and he ran right out to the lake and he jumped in with his feet out and his butt down almost like he was going to smack the water and kill a fish with his tail like a bildad. But of course, he wasn't a bildad. He was clean out of his mind from some type of poison in the bildad meat. And he sank like a rock and was never seen again. So just because somebody says something tastes good maybe doesn't mean that it's a good idea to go out and hunt it, especially if it's this uh, this rare bildad. Great story, I think. So. Oh. It's one of my favorites. I'm so glad you talked about it. I want to point out that the illustrations of these animals and creatures in the book by Don Kirchhoff are just wonderful. And it, and and there's a sort of secondary thing to it where it's like a guidebook, and it, it has the habitat. So there's a little diagram here of where the Bildad is located in the state of Maine. You know, it's like bird habitats in the bird books. You're only going to find bildads here. You're not going to find them anywhere else in the state of Maine. And it's a very amusing and, and wonderful sort of secondary theme that runs through the, through the book. Some of the others, I mean, the names are just wonderful. The, the Dino Ball, the Dungavin Hooter, another one of my favorites. Oh, yeah, he's a good one. He's uh, sort of a, a northern forest crocodile lacks a mouth, but he's a ferocious hunter, lives in old clear cuts. And when the pucker brush starts to grow up, you know, the green growth that's about waist high and you can't see what's down below you as you walk through. Well, sometimes you'll be walking, and especially if you smell like, uh, like alcohol or rum, you know, they have a special attraction to that because what they lack in mouth, they make up for in nostrils. The only way they can eat is they'll knock you over from right under the brush. And before you can realize what happens, they start pounding on you, smack, 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 with that big heavy tail of theirs, just like a crocodile has, only it's got a big bony rock on the end, perhaps. And they pound you into sort of a vaporous gas. And you're, you're pretty much unrecognizable by the time they turn around and snort you up through their nose, that Dunghaven hooter. And, uh, and this creature will leave nothing behind but a, a pair of stained boots. So it's best not to go wandering around wet areas or those old clear cuts if you've uh, not been minding what your refreshment's been in, in the evening because these Dunghaven hooters will get you. Now, that creature is pretty interesting because the name, the Dungavarin Whooper, is a very well-known ghost story and lumber ballad that hails from New Brunswick. And so it's about a a cook of a lumber that the original version of that story is about uh, a cook in a lumber camp who dies under some unfortunate circumstances and then comes to haunt the Dungavaran stream or river, such as it is, where there was quite a bit of lumber activity. And he became this forest creature that would whoop or hoot or snort depending on the, the storyteller. And they were all sorts of trouble. And there's some wonderful classic ballads that people have been singing about that story. But then later, people sort of turned it into this other version of what 
the Dungavarian Hooter could be. Even Leroy Dudley, sort of the famed guide from Katahdin, who told the chimney pond tales about Pomola, the moose-headed winged creature. He's got all sorts of rich tales from the Katad range in this guide. Pomola ended up battling the Dungavaran Hooter for supremacy. But by that time, Leroy Dudley had already sort of mixed up the Dungavaran Hooter. Forget the Camp Cook. Forget the northern mouthless crocodile. This was now a creature that had features of all of the fearsome critters and battled. Pomola, who one of the peaks of Katahdin is named after, and it's a very old creature talked about by the Wabanaki, but had also been spun richly into a, a different form that is mostly the one remembered now by Leroy Dudley. And so I think that's just, it's, it's absolutely one of my favorites as well, both because of sort of the classic lumberjack story and because of the provenance of that story and and its descent uh, and, and fame. So I'm glad you brought that one up. Well, here's another one that I loved. This one I took as my personal story. It's the Hoplit Bird. And I love the fact that you put scientific names to these things. <laughs> this, the Hoplit Bird is actually in Latin, uh, the Circumitio Caput. It's a bird with one wing shorter than the other that can only fly in circles. I identify with this bird entirely. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you can see a lot of you fly in circles still. And, and if it's no big deal, you know, you just fly in big arcing circles. And, you know, in the peaceful old growth forest, you know, you had this ability to, you know, make do with what you had as, as the kaput bird. And, uh, and they would, uh, you know, they lived a peaceful life in the old growth canopy. But as the lumberjacks started encroaching them and people started coming into the forest more, they would startle these birds. And the poor things with their different sized wings, they would fly in circles. But as they flew faster, they would undergo this uh, phenomenon that if anybody's familiar with flying knows, it's called accelerated circling, that the faster they fly, the tighter the circle they fly in until they're flying faster in tighter circles and smaller and smaller until they get so fast in such a tiny circle that their beak is right at their backside until kaput, their beak goes right up their backside and they turn clean inside out and fall to the ground and you can't really make out what they once looked like. So nobody's got a real clear impression of what they were like and they're probably extinct these days. Oh no, uh, they, but they're out there. You just have you just don't see them. They're out there. They're out there. Well, maybe I'm just telling people they're extinct because I don't want people out there stirring up those kaput birds. You know, that's a, yeah, somebody if there's good fishing somewhere and you often hear that's not too good, but then they're out there and they might be pulling a, a couple fish out of the out of the lake without well, too much trouble. Stirring, speaking of stirring up, what about ice hornets? Oh, ice hornets. Well, this one's one of my favorites because this is a creature that was not known probably to the lumberjacks. This is one that modern ice fishermen talk about. This is probably newest and most recent of all evolved fearsome critters. These ice hornets are kind of like ground hornets, pretty ferocious, but they their camouflage isn't yellow and black. It's black and blue so that they blend into the blue ice on frozen lakes. And if you're drilling in the ice or cutting ice, 
you might drill right into one of their nests. And that's trouble because they'll fly right out in a huge swarm. And they're the size of those uh, murder hornets that we've been hearing about in the news recently. They come right at you and swarm after you, just like a ground hornet. You got no choice but to run away. And like the ground hornets, you better get inside somewhere quick. You got two courses of action that can keep you safe from those ice hornets. One is to jump into some open water where the ice meets that open water, and that could lead to some bad hypothermia that might make the end of you. The other is to stand your ground and grab a few out of the air and bite their heads off, throw them on the ground. Eventually, if you do that to enough of them successfully, they'll get the picture and turn away and fly off. And that's pretty much your only hope. But these guys can really ruin your day if you're out to get a good day on the ice fishing and trying to set some traps. These guys are going to put an end to that before it even starts. That's what you got to watch out for. Them and the snow snakes. Sometimes fishermen get stuck right up in the ice house long past when they were supposed to leave because those, those snow snakes have got them surrounded. They're pretty agitated if you disturb them or their tracks. Or you might stumble over a landlocked walrus as well. Yeah, the landlocked walrus is probably the oldest of the fearsome critters, one of the most well-known fur buyers in the, in the north, and one of the very prolific naturalists was Manly Hardy. And he collected millions of pelts in his time and traded them through in the fur trade and had, uh, had quite a relationship with indigenous people and French colonists and also uh, just your regular everyday English descended Mainer right here in Brewer. And he, when he was heading up along the Chessencook by the Chessencook Lake on the East Branch, he encountered many people, lumbermen coming out the woods for the winter as he went up into the woods in the spring. And he met a bunch of people that told him to watch out for the landlocked walrus. And there could be pretty ferocious this time of year as the ice let out. You know, they're a little bit smaller than the seagoing type, but just as ferocious with their big tusks and their mouths that can suck the flesh clean off your skin. They can look like a person floating in the, in the lake just ahead of you and so can lead to all sorts of trouble. And this one is probably one of the favorites of the lumbermen. And it's, it's so clearly related to, obviously, a real walrus, kind of like the landlocked salmon is the Atlantic salmon, that it's this glacial marine relic that had been trapped in these inland lakes and rivers uh, and unable to get back to the cold see where it had come at the end of the last ice age, just like our landlocked salmon. And so uh, that's one of my personal favorites. And, and Dan's art on that one is just phenomenal to see that walrus sitting on the shore of Chesuncook Lake. I mean, you can almost imagine that that is uh, something you would stumble on, something I'd like to see. Let's talk about one of the Wabanaki creatures. It's an interesting one because you can see it within the Wabanaki culture, and then you can see it in examples in folktales worldwide. Mm, the Lumbagan. I'm not sure what the correct pronunciation is. I've never heard a native Wabanaki speaker. I'm not sure whether that name is Penobscot or Passamaquoddy. There's some other dialectical versions of that, but it's a fairly widespread 
small mermaid. And these are, you know, many of the Wabanaki creatures can change shape. And so they can turn into small people that would frolic in the waves crashing on the shore of large deep lakes or along the sea or near reversing falls with some of their favorite places. They were largely harmless and shy, but had powerful magic like many of the Wabanaki creatures. It was a, a great treat, I suppose, to trick one of these, especially the female ones when they were in human form, to become your wife. So if you stole their clothing, which I guess they wore even though they lived in the water, but they would take it off when they played in the waves. And if you could steal their clothing, they would uh, become your wife. And apparently the story goes that they could cook food from any amount of scraps. They could make this tremendous feast. So they would they would make a, a great spouse uh, if you were a Wabanaki hunter because they were they were so good at cooking. There are some other stories where they battle a larger species of mermaid that also can be found in lakes and rivers and along the shore. These are the Apodumpkin or the Nodumkenwet, uh, depending on the language. And I, any mistake I make in pronunciation is, of course, my own. These are sort of serpent-tailed kind of mermaid-like creatures that have the ability to transform. And these are quite diabolical. They bring misfortune to anyone they see walking along the shore. And children that might venture into the water might be grabbed and pulled underwater uh, if they wouldn't get out when their parents told them to. So sometimes they were used as boogeymen, but they were also known as the creature that would fill the mouth and eyes and ears and nose with mud if you were to drown in the lake. And they brought great misfortune. They've been blamed for a cholera epidemic in Bangor in the 1800s. And uh, in these creatures, the Lumbagan and the, the Nodam Kanwet, these two small and large mermaids would have the have there's one wonderful indigenous story where they have a battle for sort of who will rule the area and the battle is normally near one of the reversing falls in maine and that's uh that's an indigenous story so i'll leave that to a an indigenous person to share with you the whole account of it what is a cryptid creature so cryptid or cryptozoological creatures are creatures that are sort of modern folklore. They're creatures that, like Bigfoot, where people believe that they could be real biological creatures that are just as yet unknown to science, as opposed to a, a more mystical or magical creature or a, a creature that people sort of accept as part of story or part of myth. By people, I just mean people with modern sensibilities. I accept the existence of all of these creatures because people who are intimately tied to the land have detailed stories about them and their, their beliefs and cultural value don't need to be subject to the traditional lines of scientific evidence. But there's a whole group of people and a whole host of shows and books about cryptozoological modern folklore where people search for mermaids and especially Bigfoot and mysterious black dogs like the Turner Beast that that might haunt the the land or even mountain lions have become a cryptid the eastern cougar which has recently declared extinct but people see them all the time along with wolves and so the people believe that there are biological populations in here despite 
the the scientific community at large accepting the existence of them just like people might accept that there's a species of large bipedal ape that's bigfoot or sasquatch that wanders around and has a breeding population and has sightings throughout maine and many people tell their stories about them and there's a wonderful there's some wonderful books about bigfoot in maine uh, that are out there as well even if you've just joined us, this is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists invoking the spirit of Maine. Here on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Christopher Packard. Chris is the author of Mystical Creatures of Maine, Fantastic Beasts from Legend and Folklore, Teacher and Collector of Folk Tales, and Legends from the History of the Maine Woods and Waters. The uh, language and the oral tradition is a, as a means for passing these down. Books often get put on the shelves and don't get written, but these stories endure, and they they really do pass as yours did from great grandfather to grandfather. Are you telling these stories to your children? Oh, absolutely. I inherited not only my love of the forest and and the waters of the land that I live on, but also sort of this well-tended family tradition of story. And I think having stories, having these connections, whether you tell them as true or you tell them as just interesting tales, these are the stories that have this deep history, this connection. And so I'm absolutely telling these stories to my kids, and they were so excited and this book and this research took me years because it started out as just a passion project. And then I'm not, was not a professional writer, I had another job. And so just sort of slowly turned into this. And so all growing up, they kept asking me like, when's your book coming out? When's your, and I'm like, oh, there's no book yet. But then I would tell them some of these stories that I'd learned when we were outside or bedtime stories. And, and I know that they know all of these stories and have some great memories of some of these stories, just like I did. It's just some of that extra depth that you have when you're when you're in the woods. It's some some extra color. Can these stories relate to your your classroom teaching, for example? Well, I think all good classroom teaching is good storytelling, or the best classroom teaching is. So for me, biology and the story of evolution and how cells work and how natural communities exist and survive is really a story. It's really, a, biology is really a, a, a narrative type science where you've got this set of systems that work together and interplay and influence each other. And so while I rarely would tell a mythological, mysterious creature story in my classroom, there is a lot of storytelling and connection that is built about storytelling in my classroom, both in the content and also just about personal storytelling. The students are invited to share their stories and their connections. And I'm, of course, always sharing mine and my adventures. And, it, you know, like any job or career that's done well, it's always about connection to other people. Every business is a connections business. Uh, it's all about networking and it's all about building relationship with other people. And we do that by telling our stories 
And so whether those stories are jokes that are made up or whether those are stories that are cultural folk tales that we've been passing around this land for generations, or whether they're personal narratives that are about things that happen to us, those are the glue that holds us together and reinforces our memory of experience and also of connection. And that's, that's so yeah, absolutely. Storytelling should be in everything we do all the time. Are they just historical anomalies, these creatures, or do they have a, a, a larger mythic significance in that they represent morals and values? Well, I, I, I think in some ways it's both, and maybe even more than that. Um, in some ways, they are just a record of cultures and days gone by. But that's probably the least interesting thing to me. In other ways, they are about literally the spirits that we see when we are connected to the land around us. They're the story of the land. They like you said, they do include lessons like stay out of the water, get out when mom and dad tell you, beware of the pucker brush. Don't go wandering around the woods when you've been drinking. Of course, there's other stories like about the hide behind, who's this very fast creature who follows you around. And if you ever were walking through the woods or anywhere and you think something's following you, and you, it's probably the hide behind. And they're so fast that when you spin around, they stay right behind you or they can scuttle behind even the skinniest tree without being seen. And the surest way to keep yourself safe, as the lumberjacks would say, would be to carry uh, some alcohol with you, uh, some brandy or rum or beer. And they, the hide behind hates the smell of that and so it could keep you safe. So sometimes it's like an anti-myth. You know, it's like an anti-lesson as well. Or it's like a hazing thing, like a snipe hunt or the bildad hunt where there's intricate lessons about how to go hunting for a creature that doesn't exist, or like the snipe hunt does exist, but you're not hunting an actual snipe, which is a huntable creature here in Maine, with the hunting season and everything. And, and so, you know, sometimes they just carry their ways of teaching and lessons, and we use fear to, like, if you don't do this, the, you know, this creature is going to come get you, the, the boogeyman kind of creature. Stay in bed or the creature under your bed is going to grab your, your feet. Those, those kind of things. But again, that's probably not the most important thing. You know? And I think even the, the strangest lumberjack creature, people may have believed in. Uh, I have a stuffed jackalope head on my wall, which is a, a taxidermist, a jackrabbit with antlers. And it's just a taxidermist creation. And students routinely ask me, is that a real animal? Because they've heard of it. And, uh, and so then I get to tell a little bit of a story about it. So people will believe, and if they believe it, then it, it, catches their reality. It becomes part of reality. I mean, think about like the stock market. Is the stock market real or is it just because we believe that stocks have value, that they have value? And if you told somebody that has thousands or millions of dollars invested in stock, that the stock market is fake, they're going to laugh in your face because they are going to retire on that. They you know, have all that investment that's real value. But as we know, those can go up and down based solely on people's belief in things. It doesn't have anything to do with, with maybe the reality of what's happening. 
Now that also said, I think these creatures, you know, what if, what if these people who spent their life in the woods and their knowledge of the woods and being able to hunt and understanding the creatures that live there was literally life or death for their entire life. And they told these stories of these fantastic and magical creatures that had these powers and the ability to change shape and transform and were very unlikely, but that they still believed they existed, right? They were still part of their reality, their, their spiritual reality and their physical reality, because that's not always necessarily entirely different. What if these creatures, you know, what if there were things beyond the scope of science that we didn't understand? What if they could step into another dimension? What if they had adaptations that allowed them to fool our senses? Now, as a scientist, I don't have any evidence that that's true. Nobody does. But people have belief in there and this anecdotal evidence that people have an experience and their world is being shaped by it. These people who have intimate knowledge, some of the best knowledge in the world of the natural history of the land they live in, have a full belief in these creatures. There might be something to it. And so I'm not so quick to dismiss it. And maybe there are these either spiritual dimensions or just some other way of seeing reality. And we cling to this sort of consensus reality that we accept as society, the stock market is real, these creatures don't exist, that we are determined not to see them, yet they're maybe there in reality. So I wouldn't say they're just a cultural history footnote. I wouldn't say they're just a moral, you know, conveyance mechanism. These are universal stories told by people with knowledge in Europe and Asia and Africa and the Americas and Australia and all over the world have, have similar stories about these types of spiritual and mysterious creatures that live in the world around us. And just because we don't understand them with our modern sensibility doesn't mean that there's no reality to them. So is, does this all add up to a cultural mythology, something that's inherent? Is it the spirit of Maine that is being captured in, in the totality of, of these species in the world, well, these stories in the world? And is, is that taught? Is that Do we forget about that? Or is it just something that's sort of on the side and considered more than trivia, but just an amusing sidebar to who we are? Well, I think is it's it absolutely... Preserved? our cultural heritage and identity. I think it's absolutely worth preserving. You know, we are this amazing melting pot here in what we now call Maine. Originally, we were part of the Wabanaki Confederacy that included that the Abenaki in southern Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont and parts of Massachusetts. And then we get to the, the eastern Abenaki, uh, which would be the Penobscot, and then the Passamaquoddy, and then the Maliseet over into Canada, and then to the Micmac. Um, and so all of these people had stories that were subtly different, blended together, and had knowledge of the spirits of the land. And then we had colonial interactions where the settlers brought their stories and their creatures over across the lake onto our land that we have today. And, and, and they brought their creatures and their spirits with them and their understanding and connection to land and home 
with them. You know, like the French brought the the Lutin, which are a small little people, much like the the little people that live in the forests and rivers that the Wabanaki talk about. And there's the Luguru, the fearsome werewolf creature from French mythology that came over and everybody believed in the Luguru, this this werewolf that was, you know, related to witchcraft and cannibalism and and it sim- has some similarities and parallels with the uh the Wabanaki stories about the Chenur, the uh the the Wendigo that is maybe a more popular name uh, or more well-known name for a phenomenon like this cannibal giant that is ferocious and hunts humans in each other and has an icy heart and wanders down in winter and and people would cast this spell this summon this spirit of of cannibalism and great power onto themselves you know when they were in great need or when they attempted to harm somebody uh and they would do the same or you know if they did a terrible thing like cannibalism and the same thing is true of the stories about becoming a luguru or a werewolf uh, in French mythology and even other mythologies in Europe. And we're told right here, they, these were the, the spells that desperate sorcerers and witches would cast them upon themselves, and then they would be able to take what they needed. And where if they committed a terrible sin like cannibalism, they would be cursed by God with the luguru curse. And of course, when we, the English sort of moved the Acadians out of this area, they took the stories of the Luguru down to Louisiana with them. And they talk, still tell stories about the, the Rougarou down in the Acadian parts of the, the bayou down there. And these are, these are the stories that have parallels throughout our culture. And so we've got Wabanaki and French and English, and even maybe before that, the Portuguese and Basque fishermen were telling stories and they were blending together. And any people that came carried with them these traditional stories. And and then people came over and they passed these oral traditions around in the lumber camps and around trappers' fires and around in the buying dens of the uh, the fur traders in, in early Maine, and they became thoroughly blended together in some ways. And I think they're absolutely worth preserving as this mythology of America. We often think that American, you know, has this new culture based in media, but we really have this melted together culture of all of these people that have been living their ancestral experience and bringing their stories and passing them on. And they, they should absolutely be shared and, and continued and taught. And I hope that's what this book does. Where are you going to put this curiosity and energy next? <laughs> Where am I going to, what am I going to do next? Uh, for now, I'm spending some time making sure that this book gets out to people so that people do know these native spirits, these spirits that are native domain or, you know, maybe less native than others. Uh, and I want to make sure that people have that. But after that, I'm certainly going to probably write some books about folklore. And I've got a few in the works, some that are about creatures and some that are just about other ways of talking about the more familiar creatures that we have 
in, in this great, beautiful state full of natural wonders here in Maine. I think preserving some of the language around the way we talk about things is important as well. Chris, this has been a, just a, a wonderful conversation. I found it just interesting, informational, enjoyable. Um, whoever your students are and, and, and your family, they're lucky to have you as a teacher. Um, you, you communicated beautifully. It's been a great deal of fun. And thank you for being with us here at Conversations from the Point of Course. Thanks. I appreciate you having me, and it's been a delight talking about this, and uh, a pleasure to meet you. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today has been Christopher Packard, author of Mystical Creatures of Maine, teacher and collector of folk tales. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. If you're interested in this book, Mystical Creatures of Maine, and other titles, go to your local bookstore or order online from the publisher. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal. Sarah Orne Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnett Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story. The portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in. That sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists, visit our galleries and independent bookstores, and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal. You've been listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs, on WERU Community Radio, 89.9 FM in Blue Hill, Maine. Join us for a new conversation the first Friday of every month from 4 to 5 p.m. here on WERU. Conversations from the Pointed Furs is Elite's Island Books audio project, produced by Trisha Badger, with theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Find archived public affairs shows at WERU.org 
and visit pointedfurs.org for more information and show notes. And find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.